We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Altered States on December 25th, Christmas, 1980. Merry Christmas, listeners. This is the perfect Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was written by Patty Chayefsky, based on his own novel, directed by Ken Russell, and released by Warner Brothers. In 1978, Patty Chayefsky's novel, Altered States, was published. The book was heavily inspired by the written works of the inventor of the isolation tank, Mr. John C. Lilly, whose books described hallucinations of human and primeval ancestors. Lilly was also a dolphin researcher, and his studies likewise inspired Mike Nichols' film, Day of the Dolphin. Oh, excellent. Controversy arose with the announcement of a film adaptation when New York psychiatrist Jeffrey Lieberman claimed co-authorship of the novel, but his suit was unsuccessful and dismissed. Arthur Penn was the original director attached and stuck around long enough to cast the major roles, but was replaced in pre-production by Ken Russell. Apparently, Scott Glenn was briefly considered for the role of Eddie. It's funny because watching William Hurt, I kind of thought about Scott Glenn yeah. in this role a lot. On the way to Russell, directors who were offered the film included Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, Sidney Pollack, Robert Wise, and Orson Welles. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, Kubrick makes the most sense of that. Yeah, batch. Kubrick or Spielberg, I think I would have liked to have seen a version of I don't of. know. I feel like conceptually it's a little too silly for Kubrick. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I feel like it's it's kind of down his alley. It's a, a story that he hasn't really tackled. Well, it, it's Kubrick's version definitely wouldn't have the 2001-esque ending. Yes, he wouldn't do that over again. Bran Farren's complicated special effects requirements caused the budget to balloon from $12 million to $19 million, and soon after, Columbia President Frank Price dropped the film, but Columbia producer Daniel Melnick brought the film with him when he transferred to Warner Brothers, and it was picked up and released by that studio. It's, it is a hefty price tag for a movie of this type. Right, but I think the special effects come through for sure. It holds up very well. Yeah, but I, although that might be appealing to us, I don't know if it has a broad appeal. It's it's a little too art house, I think, to have a broad appeal with these effects. Maybe. I think this is one of those movies, like 2001, that people take drugs to watch. <laughs> And I think you need I decent special effects for that. <laughs> Early in production, Chayefsky clashed with Russell's interpretation of his work and left the film, refusing his screenwriter credit, instead going under the pseudonym Sidney Aaron, his actual first and middle names. Wait, his pseudonym is his actual name? His pseudonym for this film is his actual name. His pseudonym is Patty Chayefsky. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, don't, isn't that more ownership if you put your real if name on it? For your parents, yes. <laughs> Because the names they chose for you are on this film. <laughs> he tried first to have Russell removed from the project, since Russell had him banned from the set. Despite the film using almost the exact dialogue from the novel, 
Chayefsky's characters spoke in calm, cerebral tones where Russell's characters shouted everything at each other. It turns out, if Russell had actually changed the dialogue, he was at risk of being in violation of his contract, so his solution was to have characters shout lines, mumble them, or speak with mouths full of food and drink. Russell was allegedly drunk on set for most of the production, and after these very public clashes with Chayefsky, he was not readily hired by major studios. According to director Russell's autobiography, the film came very close to extensive recuts until a college screening at UCLA that went spectacularly well. <laughs> In fact, they tried to keep coming back and watching the movie again huh. because they were so fascinated by it. And I think that has to do with the drug culture at the time. Sure. William Hurt had very little awareness of director Ken Russell outside of his films. He described his first meeting with the director like so. We were in this little room, and there was this radiator, and a little desk, and a chair, and we didn't sit for half an hour. Neither one of us. Finally, he sat on the radiator, and I sat on the floor. When he sat on the radiator, his pants pulled up, and I saw that he had Betty Boop socks on. It was then that I thought, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it took. Sold. <laughs> Altered States is one of few films to debut in Megasound, a close relative of <laughs> Sensoround that would blast the audience with low-frequency sounds for thuds, crashes, and explosions in the audio track to make the experience that much more visceral. Well, and there's so much of that I know. In, in, in this movie. And if you're feeling that in your guts for the whole film, it has to be like, you're like, mm -hmm. oh God, am I Simeon? John Carigliano was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score. The film was also nominated for Best Sound. William Hurt was nominated for a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year in a Motion Picture, Male. Do they still have that award? That doesn't sound familiar. I don't think they do that anymore. Time Magazine included this film in their top 10 for the year. We start the film looking through the small window in a vertical sensory deprivation tank at Professor Eddie Jessup, played by William Hurt, in his first screen roll somehow, it looks like this tank has been converted from a boiler or a water heater or something, and we hear his deep breathing in the tank. Outside, his assistant, Arthur Rosenberg, played by Bob Balaban, is drinking coffee, taking notes, and standing watch. This is a much more terrifying tank to me yeah. than uh you know what we we've seen before like in simon um and we see later in this film it's very small it's claustrophobic it's, well it's small and being vertical like you're reliant on this hood being on you to contain Keep you out of the water to contain the air that yeah. you breathe and i feel like it, it i mean i guess it's not claustrophobic because you you have goggles over your eyes so you can't see anything anyways but i feel like without my other senses like all working properly mm -hmm. this would be more scary than just laying in a body of well, water and what's weird is when they find the second tank in this movie they talk about how much smaller it is and it's like it looks much bigger yeah than this tank well also i feel like some of the sensory deprivation isn't really working unless he's got earplugs in yeah because he's able to hear everything that balaban says well but not just that but when you're you know, when you're under in water, that's one thing. When you're like your ears are submerged, but he's like in a in a bubble of air, and yeah. it's also got like an inch or two of water inside the helmet. Yeah, so it's gonna yeah. be sloshing around. Right, right, right. I also think it's weird that this is the only part of the movie that has narration. Yeah, and it's from Bob Balaban's character. Yeah, because yeah, because Arthur doesn't do any more narration moving forward. I feel like you could have made it work if he was dictating some notes into a microphone, but just to have it kind of disembodied because we see him. Yeah, not and his lips aren't moving. Yeah, uh, So I just think it's weird that this is the only point of the film that has any kind of narration. 
Arthur consults a paper readout and makes some adjustments to some dials and toggles. Through this voiceover, we learn that this is 1967 and that 25 students at the university have used this tank for sensory deprivation experiments before the professor decided to try it himself. Here we get some really cool opening credits where the names of the actors are appearing at the bottom, but in the middle of the screen we just have letters sort of floating back and forth overlapping each other, and then we slowly zoom out to reveal the full-size words altered states. Eddie starts to panic in the tank and calls out to Arthur to release him. He wants to take a look at the readout himself. According to Eddie, the five hours he spent in the tank felt like one to him. He asks Arthur if they communicated while he was in the tank, and Arthur informs him that at one point he was crying. You mean actually crying? Yeah, he was sobbing. There were tears on your face. And uh, I asked you what was going on. You said you were re-experiencing your father's death. Eddie tries to coordinate a follow-up deprivation appointment in a week, and then explains his plans to Arthur to experiment thoroughly with this technology. Is this technology? I, <laughs> I mean, I guess, in, in the sense that it exists. It's something that someone built. Yeah. It, it, as in, it is the absence of nature. <laughs> yeah. We cut to a party, and Arthur is talking to some associates about Jessup's experiments. Suddenly there's a buzz at the door, and Arthur's wife answers the door while he ignores the buzzing. Arthur keeps speaking with another young professor named Emily, played by Blair Brown, who turns to look at the door just as Jessup enters. In the doorway, he is backlit with just pure white light, mm -hmm. and he's he looks all skinny, and he's wearing this small jacket, and she's very clearly attracted to him immediately. Like, she's just sucked into this image. She corners him later at the party and asks what kind of experiments he's doing. He tells her about his non-sensory deprivation work that he's... Uh, he's researching the causes of schizophrenia and she tells him that she's an anthropologist. They both have doctorates in their early to mid-twenties and brag back and forth about what geniuses they are. We cut to Emily and Eddie walking together past the library on the campus of Columbia University where the movie Ghostbusters begins. <laughs> he shares with her a little bit more about the religious implications of his research and about the sensory deprivation stuff. Suddenly he asks if they can go back to her place and she suggests that they do that right now, even though she has a roommate and they'd have to share a couch. We cut directly to them mid-sex in a bright, harsh orange light and dripping with sweat. It looks demonic and the score is very haunting, but eventually we get the reverse angle to indicate that they're actually right in front of a heat lamp explaining the orange light and sweat. So she has a roommate, but I guess they share a room? I don't know. <laughs> like a literal roommate? <laughs> well, well, because uh, otherwise why can't they do this in her room? <laughs> yeah, I guess. But uh, presumably that means they're doing this in a community space. Yeah, which is like, worse. Just yeah. don't come out here for a second. <laughs> we gonna be fucking. Uh, but this uh, this heat lamp kind of looks like an eyeball watching them, like some sort of demon eye watching them in the Saruman. darkness. Saruman. <laughs> exactly. Or Sauron. Which one's Sauron. Which? I don't know. <laughs> Saruman is, is the guy from our next Patreon review. Or our previous Patreon review. Our listeners are going to be mad that I'm not nerdy enough to know the Lord of the Rings characters. It's weird that their names are so similar, though. Why is the mm -hmm. eyeball guy, uh, is one named after the other? Do they name the wizard after the eyeball? He just ran out of names. It's like, uh. <laughs> what if we call him Sauron? That's, isn't that what we call the eye? I didn't say Sauron. I said Joe Montana. Moving forward, I don't think Blair Brown wears any clothes for the rest of the film. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> 
In the middle of sex, Eddie begins sharing his religious visions and then describes the role that religion played in his childhood. Evidently, he stopped believing when his father passed away of a prolonged cancer treatment. He tells her that his father's last words were just whispering the word terrible over and over again. By dinner time, I had dispensed with God altogether. I never saw another vision. He tells her that he's sharing all this information so that she knows how crazy he is before their relationship makes it any further. We cut back to another session in the deprivation tank, and we see flashes of light, and the suit disappears from around Eddie in the tank, and then suddenly the background is high-speed footage of clouds in the sky, and then fish are swimming around him. <laughs> I want to know how they got the fish. I think they fil- filmed them like a bright light against like a black background or something. Or like... a green screen. Or, or blue they, screen. They just filmed him through a fish tank? Maybe. Or maybe they found flying fish. You never know. You know. <laughs> he sees his father in the hospital bed and Eddie tries to hand him a Bible, which his father is not interested in. Suddenly... <laughs> we, we should describe that this is like all very surreal. No, no, no. This is a very <laughs> like, clear cut scene where it's clearly a flashback of some sort. This isn't a hallucination. Just say he's not interested when he's like like going nah yeah it's like no thank you and then we keep seeing this like uh fabric being thrown over his father's face and then his father throws it on the ground and it catches on fire on the ground well it's not just fabric i mean it's got like the face of jesus on it it's like the the shroud of turin yeah yeah but i think they that's not a real thing i think they did tests on it or something I, I, I'm not saying whether or not that's real. I'm but saying in this, Turin, ha- in this hallucination, yes, it, that is what this, this represents. This potato sack represents the <laughs> Shroud of Turin. But isn't isn't that thing is supposed to be the full length of Jesus? It's not just supposed to be a facial covering. Like this looks like he's throwing a Jesus mask on his on his dead father. <laughs> Again, this is also real in symbolism. Yes. But for some reason, it's very religious, even though he hasn't been religious since he was a child. Get to the six-eyed goat. Hold on. <laughs> Suddenly, Eddie is crucified with a goat's head with seven, seven eyes. eyes. Oh, yeah. seven eyes. That makes more sense, because seven eyes of God. What? Goat? Did you say goat? <laughs> There's seven eyes of God? What is that? Oh, sorry. D- uh, it's actually spelled good. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. God. Good. <laughs> Sorry, I am gay. I, I, I know. I know. I'm certain- just gonna put God. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> the readers want it concise. Uh, no, uh, I, I I learned a lot of random religious things through my Evangelion deep dives. Oh, there oh, you go. Okay. Is there sure. seven-eyed uh, uh, Evangelion well, monster the, in that? Well, the the three main AV units all have one has one eye, one has two, and one has four. So that so they're all combined. together. Yeah, they have seven. Seven. Okay. And and the the. Uh, organization that is in overall control called Sele, their their logo is a seven-eyed mask. Okay. His father in the bed now looks zombified, and this flaming cross is floating away from his father toward the camera. We pan down on this Dolly-esque amphitheater in the desert, and a hand grabs a golden book, and then another hand takes a knife and slices the goat's throat and spills blood all over the book. And then we see Emily and Eddie having sex on a large rock in front of some bay windows. We cut from this back to reality. So that wasn't reality. I tricked you. That was not really happening, all that stuff. Uh, But in reality, uh, a woman with wires connected all over her head can be seen on a television screen. 
and Eddie is watching her through a one-way mirror, but she's also being recorded and and broadcast on these TV screens. Just to be clear, we're no longer in the living room on the couch. Right. This is a new scene. We're back in a laboratory (laughs) setting. Yeah, this transition from this crazy dream back to just normal life, not even back to the sex scene, just back to something something else. Emily walks in and tells Eddie that she got that job and that they'll both be teaching at Harvard in the fall, and isn't that exciting? She basically proposes to him, since they'll both be in Boston together, and he tries to scare her away again by reminding her that he's crazy, but this doesn't seem like a turnoff for her. I like that her criteria is, we're going to be in the same city together. Want to get married? Let's get married. (laughs) We should get married. And you are a Faust freak, Eddie. You sell your soul to find the great truth. Well, human life doesn't have great truths. We're born in doubt. We spend our lives persuading ourselves we're alive. And one way we do that is we love each other like I love you. I can't imagine living without you. So let's get married. And if it turns out to be a disaster, it'll be a disaster. We'll shake hands and say goodbye. The patient who Arthur has attached electrodes to says that she feels better. And when asked to describe the feeling specifically, she says, I feel like my heart is being touched by Christ. Outside their lab in the hall, Eddie finds Emily sitting disappointed in his lack of response to her marriage proposal. He agrees reluctantly to go through with it, and she admits this is probably the best she could have hoped for from him. We fast forward a couple years, Emily and Eddie have children now, and friends are gathering at their apartment. A guy named Mason and Arthur are here, as well as their wives or girlfriends, not clear. Eddie tells Arthur about his plans in Mexico. He and a friend of Arthur's named Echeveria are headed to Mexico to meet with a central Mexican tribe. The Hinchi Indians. They're an isolated tribe in central Mexico who still practice the ancient Toltec ritual, sacred mushroom ceremonies, that kind of thing. Apparently, they use some kind of hallucinatory drug that is supposed to evoke a common experience in all users. Eddie also suggests that when he gets back, they could experiment with the local university sensory deprivation tank. Arthur seems less interested, but agrees to continue research with these tanks. Probably because he just has to sit there and watch lines be drawn <laughs> yeah. on a piece of paper. Also, I mean, I get, was this a standard piece of equipment? At the time, yes. They they were very popular in the mm. mid to late 70s and early 80s. I mean, the fact that we've had two movies this year that, that utilize yeah. one makes yeah. me feel like it is prominent. I would love to try one of these, actually. They actually have things like this now... Um, I mean, like in mall settings and stuff like that. Like you know those those places where you're supposed to go to relax, the and they'll have they like the orange have Julius. A, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, but they'll to have those like <laughs> oxygen bars and stuff like that, and they'll ha- just have like a water tank that you could go in and take a nap in. Do oxygen bars exist anymore? I remember I that was know. a big I, thing for a while. I, I do remember like at a mall seeing this water massager. Yeah, where it was like a conveyor belt that you just ran through this water yes. massage i was like you're doing this in a mall like are you really that bored i don't know who ever gets a massage in a mall they have those regular who ones pays too. for oxygen that's what i want to know <laughs> let's get back to the question at hand they infuse it with things did you hear that oxygen bar down the street closed no they were out of their element <laughs> arthur steps into another room of the house and finds a mess of clothes on the bed when arthur's wife enters and tells him that emily just told her that she and Eddie are getting divorced. That she's taking the kids and she's heading to Africa for a year while Eddie's going to Mexico. And when they get back, they're going to live in separate places in Cambridge. 
Arthur is floored by this information and immediately confronts Eddie with it. I mean, I know it's none of my business, but why? You're married to one of the great women of the world who adores you. My God, if anybody hasn't made you have. You're a respected and admired figure, a full professor on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. Eddie basically tells Arthur that he feels limited in his ability to accomplish scientific progress by being married and having children. Eddie, Arthur, and Echeveria meet up for dinner somewhere else, and apparently everyone else came too. I, yeah. I got the impression they were leaving this party to go eat somewhere, but everybody else shows up. Eddie goes on a mildly intoxicated rant against belief in a god outside of the human body and gets some pushback from some of the other people at this table, even though these are all scientists and probably would not bother arguing about where God is in particular. And there's a lot of scientists that that have faith in like the Christian notion of God, though. I mean, I think are that there? they, for sure, yeah. I think that they would take offense to what he's saying. Well, this lady does. Emily's pretty upset about what he has to say because she thinks that anything that he has to say is BS and that he can't differentiate between a God in a person and a God outside of a person. Mason, their new friend, repeatedly tells Eddie that he's a wacko, even though they've just met. He's already gotten a enough of a taste of the crazy that everyone talks about. Ever since we dispensed with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life. You're a wacko. Well, I think that that true self, that original self, that first self is a real, mensurate, quantifiable thing, tangible and incarnate. <laughs> And I'm going to find the fucker. We cut to Mexico, where Echeveria and Eddie are climbing the hills trying to find the Hinchy tribe. Eddie asks if he could possibly join in the ritual, and he says, they're, they're, they're a nice tribe. I bet they'd let you do it. When they find the tribe, they move around the mountains collecting mushrooms for next year's ceremony, because apparently they need to be aged for a year. Apparently this footage is actual footage of the cast with a Mexican tribe collecting mushrooms for an actual ceremony. Hmm. Well, that's how you spend $19 million on this movie. That's true. And they, they did shoot it on location in Mexico. As the ceremony begins, we get these blaring, disorienting horns from the soundtrack. The tribe and Eddie and Echeveria move into this narrow, low-ceiling cave. And over a campfire in the dark, the Hinchies dump handfuls of mushrooms into a boiling pot. One of the men leading the ceremony places a root in Eddie's hand and then says, hold it up over the pot, and then he slices open his hand between the ring finger and middle finger, and then holds it over the pot so that his blood drips into the drink. Eddie struggles to get his hand back, but the man holds it in place so that his blood continues dripping into the mushroom soup mix. I feel like this this seems out of character for me for how much Eddie Tries to get his hand protests. back? I agree. Yeah. I actually agree 100%. He seems very willing to just do horrible things to himself in the name of science and exploration but yet a minor cut and being asked to drip in this right. pot and, is and, like which, over the line for right him. which doesn't seem that crazy to me in, no. if you're talking about some tribal ritual yeah i agree that felt weird to me that he was struggling so hard to get his hand back and it's like that's not this guy this guy would just yeah. be like go yeah. for it each of the tribesmen takes one spoonful of the mixture in the corner of the cave echeveria bandages eddie's hand and then eddie moves forward to take his sip of the drink Hallucinations begin almost immediately. We get inserts of fireworks, and then pictures of Eddie and Emily dressed very fancily against a backdrop of a field of poppies, I think. It just reminds me of uh, Wizard of Oz, so I assume mm -hmm. they were poppies. I the uh, I, I feel bad for William Hurt only in this scene with 
all these sparklers and things like that. Like because they're really in the shot with him. Yeah, yeah, and they're hitting him in the face and in yeah. the eyes, yeah. and it's just like oh man. But it was a very believable performance on his part that he was, yeah. you know, running from these things. But um, when we see them against this backdrop of the flowers, it reminded me at the same time of Wizard of Oz and Mary Poppins because they're so clearly like rotoed into this background yeah. mm-hmm. um but uh and and the way that they're dressed looks like that whole sequence with the penguins and everything and this this is also the sequence where they're at like a dinner table right like dressed dressed very fancy yeah and they have a nice umbrella above them um and then we see what looks like a komodo dragon or some kind of large lizard sitting in an upside down umbrella which might be him looking up at the umbrella between them at the table i don't know um and then the tribe is dancing around a large mushroom statue now there's a snake in the upside down umbrella and eddie and emily are taking turns eating spoonfuls of some kind of sorbet next to the poppies all the photography here is actually gorgeous like every single shot is composed in such a way that you can see exactly what's happening even if it's bizarre and confusing but it's very well photographed Um, epilepsy warning though here for sure it's very very choppy well, I mean, it, it really does feel like an art film. Right. And, and, and these hallucinations are are sort of well-crafted, um, really intentional imagery. Right. Um, I don't necessarily understand what it all means. I mean, like, I think that some of the, like, I was trying to figure out what some of this stuff meant, but I, I don't know that I know. Yeah. Um, the lizards and stuff, I was like, are, are we trying to talk about, like, you know, primal brain and, and like, sort of regressing in evolution, but I'm not entirely sure but now we see the snake that was in the umbrella where the lizard was and it's wrapped around eddie's face choking him eddie rips all the bandages off his hand and he watches little motes of light drifting out of the wound toward his face and he's like laughing at it because at this point he's given himself over to the hallucinations we cut back and forth from the tribesmen dancing in circles around the mushroom statue to Emily and Eddie in their fancy clothes walking slowly through a desert toward a mushroom cloud on the horizon. Suddenly there's a small lizard in Eddie's hand and it's just sitting on the wound, but then in a blink it's gone. He also notices a larger lizard again on the floor. The lizard turns into Emily, I think, because she's in kind of the same position as the lizard was. and She's naked on the ground and he has collapsed near her in the cave. They both close their eyes as a dust storm blows through the cave, and eventually they are disintegrated by the breeze. And it's a really fascinating shot the way they did this. I'm assuming they're made out of, like, tightly packed yeah. chalk dust or something. Well, I, I think it is like a sand sculpture. So yeah. I, I think that they had them in these positions and sort of dusted them in sand and then did a replacement of them with fairly detailed sand sculptures. But that's what impresses me the most is yeah. how detailed the sand sculpture is mm-hmm. and that it comes apart as easily as it does in the breeze. Right. Well, and then they just blew a crazy strong fan at them. Yeah. Well, I think that um, you can fudge some of the details on these sand sculptures because when it is them covered in dust... Their, their their features are all kind of uh, smoothed. smoothed out. Yeah. So when you're replacing them with these sand sculptures, they don't have to be so like Madame Trousseau like yeah. detailed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can yeah. still be a little but blurry. But either way, they, both of them look better than any Madame Tussaud I've ever seen <laughs> uh, when they are coming apart even. But they're, they slowly are disintegrating until they're literally just like wedges in the sand and then they're, they're gone. And we pan up from the 
tiny mounds of dust on the ground that barely resemble them anymore, up to this enormous mushroom shape that's silhouetted by the light from outside the cave. And Eddie comes to the next morning and finds a lizard disemboweled in front of him and then goes to throw up about how disgusted he is. Apparently the Hinchies told him that he killed the lizard, but he doesn't believe them, and he thinks the entire ceremony was a prank on the foreigner. Even though he's pretending he doesn't believe anything they said, he did ask for the mushrooms to be kept, and he wants to ship them back to America for Arthur to attempt well, to synthesize specifically them. the liquid that they oh, the, cooked the that night. The soup that yeah, they yeah, made yeah. from it. I wonder how important blood is as an ingredient. Suddenly we get these inserts of what looks like hell. There's flames and screaming and people in lava bubbling over the footage looks very cool and it fits seamlessly into the aesthetic of the film despite being from 1935's dante's inferno oh i do like the sort of um combining of religious imagery with sort of scientific imagery so like not only does it look like hell but it looks like this sort of primordial ooze thing mm-hmm. so like we're we're really playing up both sides of these imagery in, yeah. in every dream he has it has both religious implications because you have the snake and you have this adam and eve kind of thing happening in and that also evolution but, but you have evolution t- type of thing happening uh and and you're talking about life and death and and those are both scientific and you know religious and cultural right which are clearly a reference to an earlier film we discussed trog which had <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, the early memories of a caveman and lava mixed together. Um, really, Trog was just a very thoughtful piece. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just recycling 20 minutes of Ray Harryhausen animation in the middle of a piece of garbage. But this movie is basically just Simon meets Trog, essentially. <laughs> yeah. But as a little bit more serious movie than either of those. <laughs> we mix this hell footage into inserts of Eddie in the first deprivation tank, and then we hear his narration echoing. reminds me of ghostbusters <laughs> when ray and winston are driving across the bridge mm-hmm. and he asks ray if he remembers anything from the bible about the dead rising from the grave yeah and then ray says i remember revelation seven twelve, and i looked as he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth and the moon became as blood and the seas boiled and the skies fell judgment day judgment day we cut to this sterile laboratory environment and we're observing eddie's experience from outside of his mind now and mason and arthur are just sitting silently in chairs while they look at him just shout what he's watching in this box it's not even a sensory deprivation tank because he's not in water he's not submerged no he is he's is floating. he in that yeah he's not only floating he's floating in a solution yeah um uh, a salt an alkali solution to keep mm-hmm. so he floats Okay. Yeah. And actually, it, when they first approach the tank, um, there's all this sediment around it, which I, I guess would be what no, happens no, no. when that this is a evaporates. This is a different room. Oh. 
This isn't this isn't the lay down tank. This is oh no, we're it's like in an office with a library on the back wall, and oh. they're they're just looking through a window at yeah. him sitting there. Yeah, oh, he, he's right. just in a okay. soundproof booth. Right, he but he's not in a liquid here. No, no, no. Uh, the, gotcha, the, the, gotcha. This, yeah, I I imagine this is like that room. The closest thing they could construct yeah. on their own yeah, yeah that, that one the sound room where you just go crazy because you're you just... can hear your own heartbeat and yeah, stuff. yeah yeah we need one of those so we stop getting the airplanes flying over just hear our heartbeats on the <laughs> our or... jokes just hit that much better because you know you can't hear anything else there you go <laughs> can you hear me over the noise can you hear me over that <laughs> we, we don't hear anything buddy it's deafening the noise is deafening can you hear me about this noise oh my most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. I'm watching the, the birth agony of a mountain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> uh, Eddie blacks out, and Arthur says that he's usually out for like four hours. And when he wakes up, he doesn't remember any of it. Mason is terrified of this chemical they brought back from Mexico, especially when he learns that it seems to attack the brain specifically, <laughs> which is not fun. Like, I would have liked it if, if they were like, Oh, he's usually out for about four hours. You want to go get some lunch? Like, they just leave <laughs> and come back with in and out uh, Man, you guys flew across the country for this. After a short disagreement, Arthur basically admits that he agrees with Mason and that he wants Eddie to stop, but he doesn't seem to have any control, and he basically brought Mason along to help convince Eddie to stop. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I agree. Sounds really awful. Can you talk to him, please? <laughs> he's not listening to me. Mason tells Eddie that he's probably giving himself cancer. Eddie says that the Indians don't have cancer, and the lab mice he studies that he's been giving a shitload of this stuff to don't have cancer. Though I'd love to see what their dreams look like. <laughs> Some sexy mouse just disappearing like chalk in the wind. Sexy mouse. <laughs> now Eddie's plan is to move across town to the sensory deprivation tank because they're bordering on toxic levels of the substance, and the only way to increase its effect is to minimize all other sensory input. Mason would rather continue testing the material before they keep pumping Eddie's brain full of it. I, I love this Mason character because I, I feel he's like... He's the voice of reason yes, for he's sure. The voice, yeah. he's the voice of the audience saying, what are you doing? This is nutty. <laughs> yeah. This is... You're a drug addict. This right. isn't science right. anymore. Right. Stop. But at the same time, he's also mildly curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, the whole time, he's, he's angry because these people are making these completely radical suggestions but he's also a little bit angry because he thinks that they're right and he's furious that they're coming up with it so near him and that he's not coming up with it well and i think it's almost like it's so like the stuff that they're saying is just so preposterous that you know every logical ounce of of him is saying like none of this stuff is true his brain is fighting back but he really kind of wants it to be true yeah and as much as he's arguing with them he's mostly arguing with the part of himself that's like really did you really turn into a monkey in there (laughs) (laughs) like and he's just like no no i'm a i'm an endocrinologist yeah stop it I love when he goes on that rant. Yeah. <laughs> it lists every note yeah. of position that he serves. Yeah. As they inspect the new tank, and this is what you were talking about that's yeah. covered with the solution a little bit. Yeah. Um, because they, they do mention, like, the chemicals that they use, and it's not just salt they have. It's a to, solution to make buoyancy. you float. Yeah. 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 It's some sort of salt solution. And there's probably something in there, too, to make it either more conductive or less conductive i don't know because of the electrodes on his head so maybe you they don't want a highly conductive solution that makes sense Hmm. as they're inspecting the tank mason continues to lecture them on the ethical issues of using untested chemicals on human subjects 
He tells them that they can keep using his lab, but they have to stop giving Eddie this chemical or they can't use any more of his equipment because it's ridiculously unsafe. We cut to Mason back in his own lab because he's like, screw you guys, I'm out of here. If you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to go back to my lab. And he works on his own stuff for like three uh, runs of his experiment. And he's like, he turns to his assistant. He's like, I did the first three. Why don't you take over the rest of these? I'll go back to the lab. I want to make sure they don't find anything without me. Magnesium sulfate. There you go. There we go. I told you it was something you would have written down. I, again, I didn't. Uh, but I, I, I have the script up right now. So Okay. <laughs> they mic up Eddie and he describes what he's seeing inside the tank as the hallucinations begin. First, it's just an environment and then he's describing what he considers to be the first humans they're like four feet tall they're covered in hair but they're walking upright they're very graceful he says mason thinks that he's just going crazy in there suddenly eddie is describing his own personal transformation into one of these proto-humans his voice gets growly and he's joining these other humans in the killing of a goat mason doesn't need to hear anymore and moves to open the tank immediately he asks if Eddie's okay, and in the absence of a response, he closes the tank back up. Sound like he was having a bad trip to me. Some of these tank trips can get pretty creepy. And then they hear this bizarre ape scream from the tank. Yeah. <coughs> the hell was that? When they open the tank to retrieve him hours later, his face is smeared with, like, it looks like there's white powder smeared on the top half of his face, mm-hmm. and then he has blood all around his mouth. Eddie is conscious enough already to request lab tests be done on his blood, but he's not able to talk yet, so he's gesturing for paper to write on. And he also requests for pictures to be taken of his neck before he reconstitutes, as he says. Yeah, he wants x-rays. Right. Um, uh, Also, an interesting thing, because while Mason has been an objector or disbeliever, he takes the blood that he wipes off his face and burns it. Yes. Because he knows that Eddie's going to say that was goat's blood, and he's terrified that it is going to be turned out to be goat's blood. Mm-hmm. But it, se- it just seems weird to me because, like, I mean, I guess he doesn't want to admit it, but if it really were true, wouldn't that be a crazy discovery and, and that well, he's part of? That's the problem is that he's he's saying that this discovery would be at odds with the scientific part of his brain, and it's like, that's not how science works. Science right. takes new evidence into account and... Well, and maybe he doesn't want to be like It's such a radical change. Looked at, looked at like he's crazy. Maybe. But either way, he wipes all the blood off of his face and they never tell him that he had the blood on his face in the first place and then he throws the rag into a furnace and watches it burn intently because he's terrified that someone's going to find it. Mason puts together that Eddie is suggesting that his hallucinations have externalized and physically manifested in his body in some way and he is furious at the suggestion. Oh, stop talking shit. You trying to say your dumb hallucination is externalized? What do you write? Not common aphasia, time, space, fallout from the hallucination. You are a fucking flake, Jessup. So get dressed and I'm going to take you over the Brigham and do a complete workup on you. As much as Mason is putting up a fight here, he seems mostly terrified that what Eddie's saying is true. The three scientists bust into an x-ray tech's office, played by John Larroquette, yeah. and <laughs> request a series of x-rays as an emergency. Mason and Arthur have a moment in the hallway where Arthur says, well, it's a good thing we didn't tell him about the blood because he probably would have said it's goat's blood. And Mason considers this an attack because he knows that Arthur also thinks it was the goat blood. (laughs) (laughs) And so he tries to explain it away scientifically that, oh, no, he had a seizure in the tank and he bit his lip and that's the blood Mm -hmm. came out and and we didn't test it, but it doesn't matter. We don't have to follow up on that at all. Looking at the finished x-rays with the tech, 
Eddie sees what he calls a laryngeal sack and claims that he must have regressed because those are strictly simian. Mason wants a second opinion from the radiologist on shift because he doesn't care what Eddie has to say. None of them are, right. are x-ray readers. Of course, Eddie's right. Mason starts shouting his resume at them as an argument for listening to him over their own gut instinct, but it's no use, and they're just laughing in his face. He's like, I'm going to take these to a radiologist. And they're like, okay, do it. Like, they don't even go with him because they know what the radiologist is going to tell him. But he hands the x-rays to the guy, and he says, what are your thoughts on this friend of mine? And he says, I thought that the x-rays looked somewhat unusual. And the guy looks at him for one second, and he goes, somewhat. This guy's a fucking gorilla. I was so excited who the radiologist was. Who was the radiologist? I don't remember. It was Henry yeah. from Punky Brewster. And also like the Police Academy movies. And oh, yeah. He was, yeah George yeah. Gaines. Yeah. yeah. I didn't watch Punky Brewster. Well, you're lost. But I've seen that a lot of the production s- staff of the new show. It's getting a reboot. It's getting a reboot? It's all over the lot. Mm. We cut to Eddie in bed with probably a student. He wakes suddenly to large bulging sacks on his arms, like they're like bubbles that are like pulsating under the skin of his arms. Yeah, the effects for this are great. Yeah, yeah. and he, it's happening on his chest too. It's um, like he's about to give birth to a bunch of mogwai. He rushes to the bathroom, and in the mirror he sees his brow is bulging also to make him closer resemble a caveman. He hops in the shower, and we pan down his body to see ape feet with a sixth toe on each foot. Again, in a blink, they're gone, making it seem more like a hallucination than a physical manifestation. When he opens the bathroom door to head back into the room, it's a glowing red hellscape, and he's standing on the edge of a cliff. The hallucination is interrupted when the girl in bed turns a nightlight on to check on him. He moves to a desk to take notes on this experience, and his arm is still all bulgy and weird, and he's just, like, looking at it and cry laughing while he's trying to, like, write down what happened to him. This, uh, the the girl in bed, by the way, is just, like, one of his students, I think. I'm assuming because yeah. she calls him Dr. Jessup or instead of... Does it is it Dr. Jessup or yeah. Professor? Or, Something like yeah, that, yeah. But either way, I was just like, oh, creepy. Yeah. You okay, Dr. Jessup? Yes. We cut to an airport where Emily is moving through customs and they're checking her bag, which is just full of camera equipment. James hear? Bond is getting a page. <laughs> yes. I was like, I was like, did they just page Daniel Craig? Yeah. Uh, James Bond is getting a page from American Airlines on the PA system. I think I Googled it. I think he was 12 at the time. Oh, okay. So probably not him. <laughs> I guess you could. No, be. you could page a 12 year old. Emily. Oh my god, you look so marvelous. Eddie is here to pick up Emily and the girls, and here's where we get our first real glimpse of the youngest daughter, played by Drew Barrymore, just being adorable in the background. Emily tells Eddie about her experiences in Africa studying the apes, and that she observed occasions of predation, which supposedly is not a thing. Like, gorillas are supposed to be vegetarian, they eat just the grasslands, but she said that she saw them eating animals and hunting them together and even uh occasions of of communication what she considered to be communication between hunting animals eddie asks if she has recordings of these animals talking to each other and she says of course she does but then she interrupts him to tell him that she got a letter from mason eddie is instantly pissed off to hear about this and apparently he told her about their work with this dangerous mexican drug and that over the last year he's taken a lot of it Mason has shared with her his worry that Eddie may have leukemia or lymphoma and begged her to have this conversation with him when she got home. She's in, like, Nairobi, 
Right. So, so Mason wrote a letter. How long do you think it took that letter to get there in 1967? Yeah. That's a good question. Know, yeah. And, and so like, I'm thinking. Well, like, it's later now. It was 67 in the beginning, but they true. have a seven-year-old kid now. So okay. It's in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, but but still, even so, like he wrote a letter, and it's probably been weeks and weeks of additional testing been going on. Yeah. But uh, she says, oh, Mason says that you might have leukemia or lymphoma. And then Eddie says, it's not a tumor. <laughs> Sorry, wrong clip. It's not leukemia. Emily also reveals that Mason says Eddie's blood test showed simian blood groups, which I'm surprised Mason would even admit, considering how anti-evidence for this whole experiment yeah. he's been. Eddie wants to get back in the tank, but Arthur and Mason are too scared and they're too busy testing rats back at the lab. Eddie tries to tell her more about the implications of their study, but she's not listening to him because their children are asking for food and they're only speaking to her. They're ignoring their father completely because he's not a part of their life anymore. Maybe he never was. Eddie flips out on her because he's getting the same passive-aggressive non-interaction from Mason and Arthur, and he's getting impatient because no one's listening to him and no one's furthering this science. She agrees to meet with him tomorrow to go over all of his data, and we cut to the laboratory at night, where it looks like Eddie's going to do the experiment by himself because he's having to close the door of the tank from inside of it. I don't know how he's going to get himself out of it on his own without drowning in here. While he's in the tank, we cut to Emily's place where she's getting a call from Mason and telling him that she agrees with his hypothesis that Eddie's on the verge of a breakdown and she says that everything he said sounded crazy to her today. Back at the lab, we see a completely dark with hair ape arm pushing open the tank. A man in the basement, I think it's a janitor, um, is lured into Eddie's workspace by the sounds of the lab equipment recording the vitals. And as he opens the door to the room, Eddie bursts past him in this gorilla form, and the man runs full speed away toward the guard shack. The person playing Eddie here is actually choreographer Michael Gaudreau, because they wanted someone that yeah. could gracefully well, would, dance around in the makeup. Yeah, because I, 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 I stopped at this point and went and looked it up because of the way he was moving. I was like, well, first of all, he looks much smaller. Right, which I think you would want if you're going to apply so much makeup to the outside of this character. Well, too. and in addition to that, when he talks about um, the last time he talked about... <laughs> that it should be four feet tall. Yeah, that they were very small. Yes. And I was like, so this guy has to be smaller. Um, but also, he just he moves so, so ape-like that I, I was like, this is somebody who's got movement training and, yes. and, and studies animals and stuff. Well, and plus, like, there's a scene where he just grabs some pipes and just lifts himself yes. up, like, legs first up into yeah. those, like, oh, it's like, William okay. Hurt you are strong. Like, William Hart is fit in this movie, and he cannot do that. The security guard also sees this ape, they're calling it, and he calls it in to request backup because this is, like, a laboratory animal that has escaped, yeah. Yeah. and they need to, to figure out who it belongs to and get it back in a cage. We see Eddie sneaking around in the boiler room and hiding, I'm curious if Joss Whedon wasn't referencing this in the first Avengers movie mm. when we finally see Hulk transform into the monster and they send Black Widow after it into the boiler room of the helicarrier. Yeah. And she's walking through all these pipes just like, where's that monster at? I hope it doesn't come out and get me. But I definitely had vibes of that scene here. Suddenly the security guard is attacked and beaten mercilessly with his own nightstick, possibly to death. It's not clear here. The creature is chased out of the lab and off the property. He learns from street dogs that he can eat garbage out of trash cans. <laughs> Eventually, the dogs return and chase him over a fence into the Bronx Zoo. This is the only film ever to shoot at the Bronx Zoo, probably on account of this actor smacking elephants around in the yeah. cage. 
He drinks water from an elephant enclosure, and if when they get too close to him, the actor starts like smacking them in the face to to warn them off. And the elephants seem like, oh shit, I don't know what's going on, but this is not what the people do that are here. So yeah. I'm gonna go the other way, and they kind of leave him alone. They give him his space. He tries to swipe a huge chunk of meat out of a tiger cage and almost loses a hand to an angry tiger. He finds an enclosure of small goat-like creatures. I guess they're Sardinian sheep. But uh, Google that. It, it was in a press release of the okay. animals at the Bronx Zoo that were involved in the production. Okay. But they're Sardinian sheep because he calls it a sheep later. Looking but I was that like, up. Sar- oh, Sardinian is in like from, uh, sard- from a sardine. From from a- from a sardine. <laughs> yes. The kind of sheep you would find on a small fish. Sar- Sardinia. Sure. Sure, that was the kind of sheep. I don't know. These don't look anything like what was in the movie. Okay. Well, either way, they sound like goats to me, and they look like tiny antelopes, but I don't know what they are. Something said Sardinian sheep. He hits one with a rock and then starts eating it in the enclosure as the others run away. A security guard at the zoo arrives, probably in response to this ape man having triggered one of the electric fences on his way in, and he sees the remains of this animal that Eddie has eaten, and then he sees a naked human laying right next to it, like he just passed out after he ate it. He moves to inspect the body closer, and we cut right to jail, where Eddie is being released to the custody of Mason and Emily. Back at home later that night, Eddie tries to play it off as just a silly thing that happened. He's like, oh my god, I can't imagine from your perspective how this looks. You got this letter saying that Mason thinks I'm crazy, and then you get a call at 2.30 because I ate an animal at the zoo. You probably <laughs> think I'm totally nuts, There's a but total- I'm not, it Every- turns out. <laughs> Everything is fine. Yeah. Nothing is fucked, dude. <laughs> Nothing's fucked here, dude. Nothing is fucked. He tells her his entire adventure from the lab to the zoo. He says that even his recollection is only in terms that the ape man would understand. So he doesn't know how he got out of the lab, yeah. but he remembers the dogs. He remembers just wanting to survive wanting water and wanting food and then wanting to sleep and that in that order that's all he wanted he calls his animal victim a small sheep here which it Mm -hmm. turns out it was a sardinian sheep and i would trust the william hurt character in this movie to identify the species even that's not necessarily what google says someone's buzzing at the front door and this is when i realized that the party earlier was taking place at her house because she's answering the same door from that party when she and eddie first met on her way to the door eddie confesses to her that he may have killed a man tonight because he beat up a security guard in the laboratory and this is where she should have just picked up a phone and called the police and said no you got to come back you got to come back and pick this guy up because he attacked a guard somewhere in his drug haze yeah so this is where things fall apart a little bit for me in the movie is her reactions to all this from like this point onward but really she only has the next 20 seconds to make the judgment call that i'm going to call the police right now because she goes to answer the door and it's mason and mason says hey i got all of his clothes from the lab so he's not going to get in trouble for breaking into the lab at night however while i was there it turns out a giant ape attacked a security guard implying that there were witnesses that saw that this was an ape that had attacked a security guard and now she realizes he's not bullshitting me and i can't call the police and say oh my husband was the ape he turns into an ape when he takes drugs and he goes in the right. tank. I, yes and no. I don't know. People people are often mistaken with eyewitness things and 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 uh, an ape, apes and humans 
are similar enough that and I honestly, think that you could have made a mistake with this. And, and and I think that the police would totally believe that. Yeah. yeah. Or that a person in an ape costume did this. Sure. Because that's technically what we saw. <laughs> Emily throws her hand over her mouth because she realizes the implications of what Mason is saying. That Eddie was right. That he did regress completely to an ape form. And now we get the opposite shot from earlier where he was backlit in the doorway looking down the opposite end of the hall and he's silhouetted in shadow, but in the same pose, like standing alone at the opposite end of the hall. Mason asks if Eddie's the one who brought the ape down to the lab. Emily asks Eddie to tell Mason what he just told her. Like, tell him about your whole adventure tonight. Let him know what just happened so that he can be where I'm at. Yeah. Later that night, we cut to Emily listening to the recordings of the first sensory deprivation in the horizontal tank. As she listens to the sounds that Eddie is making, she recognizes them from her studies in Nairobi as Mm -hmm. resembling closely uh, these ancient uh, ancestor sounds. She's also observing the x-rays on her own and seems pretty terrified by what she sees. That night, she has dreams of him running through the streets as an ape with dogs chasing him. She calls Eddie... And invites him over to confess that she now believes what he's saying. But why would you... See, this is my problem. Like, she believes him and knows that he's dangerous Mm -hmm. in this state. I think he's dangerous immediately after the experiment. We don't have any proof that he's regressing constantly uncontrolled. It's when he takes the drug and goes into the tank. I don't think we know enough to know that. I think that we know that he has done these things... And and we we now understand what he's doing. I don't feel like I would want to be around him. Well, she's also madly in love with him. Yeah, I think that that's my problem. And and not to say that I'm not enjoying the movie up until this point. You know, I'm just saying like my problem with this particular part of the movie is I don't feel like we've established how, that she's so in love with him that she's irrational. I think being with him at all is irrational. Even before he was doing this experiment, like being in love with him by itself is almost irrational because he doesn't care about her in any way. He's made that clear so many times. And the only reason he agreed to marry her was so that she wouldn't leave because he just kind of needed someone around. But he's not in love with her. Hmm. And he's he's asked her multiple times, I don't know why you put up with me. And she says, because I'm in love with you or because I love you so much. Or I guess the last time she said it when he told her about his trip to the zoo she said i loved you past tense implying i did at one point but you screwed it up a little bit by aping out but she invites him over and she says that she has some gut feeling that what he's describing is reality and not just a drug-induced hallucination i don't know why i think this in defiance of all rationality but i do and now that i do i'm terrified i mean really terrified petrified so am i he tells her that as a scientist He can't give up on these experiments, and she half understands that, but she's also worried about him, that he may be doing permanent genetic damage to himself. She invites him to please come and stay the night with her. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Why not? I mean, her kids aren't there, I don't think. I think she already sent them somewhere. Yeah, where are the kids? Because we don't see the kids for the rest of the movie. No, no, I, I realize that we don't, but I just, no, you're not staying at my house, you crazy monkey man. I think she's into it. I think she'd be cool if he turned into a monkey in the middle of the night. 
We cut to the laboratory the next day, and apparently Mason, Arthur, and Emily are all here to accompany Eddie for a repeat of the experiment. Mason says, I'll tell you one thing. You come out of that tank looking like an ape, and I'm going over to Mass Metal and commit myself. Eddie's friends all nervously await the results of the experiment. Eventually, Emily can't take it anymore and demands they stop down. But suddenly, their video feed inside the tank is flashing bright lights. Eddie is screaming, and his face is, like, bulging out in all directions. He has the same, like, bulging pulsating sacks from his arm but now they're all around his face emily wants to open the tank and mason has to pull her away from it and carry her out back to the observation room bright light is suddenly spiraling out of the tank blasting directly into arthur's face mason sets emily down in the hallway and then rushes back in to save arthur who has already been blasted unconscious by this light suddenly the blaring sound and white lights stop simultaneously and emily heads inside to see what happened the entire tank is flashing bright white. Like, it's a translucent metal box mm -hmm. somehow. It's, it's, it's a solid metal thing, but it's glowing like it's white hot. It, it, it's like we're seeing an x-ray. Yeah. Like, because we can see muscle tissue and bones and things moving around inside of it. Yeah, it's very, very neat effect that they're doing here. And uh, the camera tips up to look at the pipes overhead because we're still in this boiler room area of the laboratory and suddenly we see screaming inserts of eddie as this enormous blob with a human face inside and then the pipes are all torn up into the ceiling and just wrenched free from all of the framework that they're attached to and they're dripping down on the lab when an explosion throws emily back against the wall and shatters the window into the observation room when I think she, the uh, the effect on the pipes is crazy. Yeah, everything here looks amazing. I mean, yeah, everything's amazing. But like, I was I was blown away by the pipes because they must have been made of some weird flexible material because they mm -hmm. all just sort of like bend up into each other. And whatever they're using to pull it up is completely invisible. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. They all go up at once, and you don't see anything affecting them. It's it's amazing. But she can't get through the door back into the lab, and so she climbs through the now shattered window from the observation room toward the glowing smoky vortex where the sensory deprivation tank used to be but has completely disappeared we see more inserts of this screaming blob and we push into it down to a cellular level and an atomic level under bizarre sound effects that are that really sell everything the sounds and the picture all go together really well um, i just love the effects on everything here suddenly emily is naked again and we see her hands reaching into the void to cradle the blobby head of Eddie's new form. It's also seen through this staticky filter, just him, like just rotoed out this one character. But as her clear hands touch him, suddenly his image resolves and we cut back to the lab where in reality, she's just lifting him out of the tank to save him. Arthur and Mason wake up on the floor and we cut back to her apartment that night where Mason carries Eddie in and lays him down on a bed. Emily walks to the other room of the house and begins crying until Mason enters and he says, everything's going to be okay. I checked his vitals. You know, blood looks good. I think he's going to be fine. He might sleep for a couple days. And she confesses to him that she's having a breakdown because she realized that even though she's loved Eddie this whole time, that he's never loved her as much as he's loved these experiments and that there's no way she's going to get him to give up on this. Like that was as close to God as he's ever been and he's going to keep chasing it and she's lost this contest with physics arthur has eddie's excitement for the experiment now the whole tank apparently exploded that's what that blast was that sent her against the wall the tank is gone 
and he can't stop thinking about the implications of what they're working with. I can't help it. You may want to go to sleep right now, but the way I feel, I don't expect to go to sleep for a year. I'm on fucking fire! Mason, on the other hand, would rather forget the entire thing ever happened, as would Emily, it seems. Arthur demands they get back to experimenting with new human subjects, and Mason is trying to talk him out of this dangerous path. Later, after Mason and Arthur have left, Emily is sleeping naked on the couch when Eddie enters, also naked, to cover her with a blanket. He lays his head in her lap, and in the morning, as she's waking, he stands in the doorway near her and tells her, I can't tell you how much you mean to me. How much I need you and the kid, I just wanted you to know that. You saved me, you redeemed me from the pit I was in at Emily. I was in that ultimate moment of terror that is the beginning of life. It is nothing. Simple, hideous nothing. The final truth of all things is that there is no final truth. So it seems like that's satisfied his curiosity. He has ended his search for the answer to everything because the answer is that this all this metaphysical stuff that you've been doing there's no right answer to that the only thing there's a right answer to is reality so if you focus on reality that's where you get the correct answers to things suddenly he has another attack and his arms are bulging in the hallway again she tells eddie that if he loves her he can defy this and make it unreal the same as he made it real by just concentrating hard enough to believe that it's not happening to understand that he lives in reality where that doesn't happen as they grasp each other's hands in the hallway, both characters are suddenly transformed into different versions of a lava monster. <laughs> uh, he is like that blobby character again, but he's he's all red, like Hellboy muscle blob man, all red. And she looks like molten rock with like like cracks throughout her body. Eddie is pounding on the ground and the walls of the hallway to get out of this hallucination in almost an exact duplication of what the animated character at the end of the Take On Me music video does mm -hmm. <laughs> to get out of his cartoon universe. Eventually, Eddie makes it back to his human form and approaches his lava monster wife. He hugs the lava monster and she transforms back into Emily and he tells her that he loves her and they embrace here on the floor in the hallway. And that's the end of our film. Altered states, everybody. I'm not quite sure what that ending was supposed yeah. to mean. Like, was he transferring some kind of energy to her uh i i thought she was th there was a couple where the the camera's right directly looking at her with her arms outstretched and i thought she was like shrinking shrinking yeah uh -huh. and that's because of the way they did this effect on her her silhouette is a normal effect a silhouette of someone reaching toward you mm -hmm. but because the texture that they've applied is just filling the silhouette it doesn't look like her arms are stretching toward the camera it just looks like they're short, like yeah. they're just stubby because she's been flattened out yeah. by it. Um, but I think the implication is just that what's been going on is a physical manifestation of his fantasy in his brain and that if he accepts that there is a reality that, that he can cancel out these fantasies so that they're not affecting the real world. But this is the first time that is that it has affected anyone other than himself mm -hmm. as far as humans go. I mean, he ate an animal earlier that affected the animal i guess but um this is the first time that he's put something in his life that he loved at risk yeah and so this was his chance to finally come to terms with breaking free from the illusion and saving the person that he loves from being consumed by a manifestation of his you know hallucinations but i i find this ending a little problematic in that arthur 
still is like gung ho. Right, which is why if they ever did Altered States Two, it's got to be Balaban. Yeah, and he's been doing this shit in secret for decades. (laughs) But you're right that that definitely is a a loose thread at the end Mm -hmm. of the film because he's 100% like on board with we need to get thousands of students in here. It'd be different if it was. Like he, they were, he and Mason were both on the same page of, we need to shut this down yeah. and get rid of everything. Um, Another it, option is just to have one quick shot of him shooting Arthur in the head at the <laughs> end of the movie, like after the credits. Um, a lot of this movie kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, Primer. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, yeah. With with the, the entering and exiting of these uh, devices um, and then this kind of ambiguous ending of continuing the, the science yes because uh, that's how I, that's what in my mind what arthur was going to be doing like he was going to set up some kind of major lab for this kind of work and go on with it man uh, primer does such a good job of that that like i've never i've never felt like palpable terror from a paradox before mm-hmm. until the point in primer where you where you realize they fucked up and you're just like oh shit what does that mean yeah like, what did we just do to the universe <laughs> but yeah i uh I really like this movie. I think that the script works really well, um, even though, I mean, basically what happened was the screenwriter had these crazy ideas for a story and a director had a completely different idea of how to go with it. But it's really interesting to see that that both people got their story told because mm-hmm. um, the director got to pick what it would look and sound like, but the writer got to pick what would happen and what would be said. And so you still have the same story. And coming from the same characters. And they all feel like real characters in this universe. I mean, William Hurt is really knocking it out of the park for his first performance to be someone saying the lines he says in this movie in as believable a way as he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did great. I trust that he believes this stuff the whole time he's talking about it. I think that I I also very much enjoyed the movie. Conceptually, though, like it's it does verge on a little silly for me. You know, with the blob monster stuff? No, not the blob monster stuff. I think just the turning into a monkey stuff. Like mm. I feel like. <laughs> what did you think about when his wife turned into Teka? Yeah, well, I actually the thing that I was thinking about more often was the the Star Trek episode where they all turn into animals and and they're yeah. they're all de evolving. And, and they stay that way for a season, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that one. You know, Picard turns into a little like marmoset or something <laughs> that sounds right uh but you know like it's it's just a little ridiculous and and so i feel like i enjoyed the the psychology of it all but i was missing a little bit uh, more science do you think that there's a way that this could feel less silly that you could tell a story about a person taking drugs and turning into a monkey and make it less silly because I feel like it does a pretty good job of making it seem as realistic as possible. I, I mean, yeah, I think that I I I, I see what you're saying. I, I yeah. but the like, I mean the I, the the concept is the concept silly. in itself is silly, and so I think that that is hard to get away from. Uh, because I knew nothing about this movie going in. I I, I didn't know the the I didn't know the premise because I don't listen. And <laughs> but I, see now my my reading of the of the of the understanding of the movie is not that he's turning into an ape because those are our ancestors and this drug specifically keeps you in touch with your ancestors, which I think might be the point of the movie. But what I got from it is that all it does is basically 
take what you're thinking about the most. Yeah. And whatever your hallucinations would be on this drug and manifest them. So if somebody had a fantasy that they turn into Tony the Tiger, that person would turn into Tony Tiger. Sure. Either way, though, I don't think I don't know that it matters because I think that I think that the way that I would have played it to make it less silly was that this wasn't this wasn't a physical manifestation, but such a powerful psychological thing that is happening to him that that it gives him that he thought that that is what is happening what about you did you you see glass did you no okay but even when he is when he comes out of the tank and people think they're seeing a monkey it's because he's acting that way Mm. and he's done that to himself and he attacks people in that way and he you know he tries to eat you know a a deer in the or a goat in in the zoo because that's what he thinks because that's what he thinks he is but like it but and and maybe we see the monkey in those moments but then when we see it from some other outside perspective that's not what it is maybe i i kind of like that it is what it is and that he's the only one who believes that for so long and then other people come to this realization that oh he's not making it up that when he thinks these things about himself, they come true because of the combination of the drugs and because of his brain power and his ability to project the hallucinations into reality. I, I think that there's a couple of things working in this film. There's first, there's the religion aspect. Of, Which of, doesn't really uh, come to play with the, the actual like physical uh, manifestations of anything. Correct. Uh, it, it it's it's part of his visions of things before, right? And and he had mentioned that he had religious visions, and and whether or not we're supposed to take that he has schizophrenic tendencies, and that's why he's studying schizophrenics. He obviously has social uh, uh, socializing issues, and he tells Emily earlier that part of their study about schizophrenia is that he thinks that it's not even a disease right that it's just a higher function of the brain uh some of the other things that they kind of touch on that i think are interesting that aren't fully explored is that they talk about um energy and how memory is energy and how our bodies are made of atoms that are six billion years old yeah and and unlocking the potential of that energy. I don't know. That stuff makes me think of that. What the bleep is this movie? And it just makes yeah. me angry. So well, it makes me think like, of Frozen. Oh, happy water has crystals and sad water doesn't. Like Frozen 2. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, water um, has memories. Because <laughs> because a, a physical force happened inside of that tank. Right. And uh, energy was being released. Especially yeah. when it exploded, which well, is Arthur's point. Is like, is there a way to harness this technology for mm-hmm. use in like power generation? Because and, that was huge. And that was going to be some. That was going to be my next point. Was what is really happening when when the tank explodes and like the television sort of explodes and the mm-hmm. pipes go up and then there's a whirlpool, a glowing whirlpool in the room. Isn't it gorgeous though? It's beautiful. Yeah. But what is that? Because it's not his body regressing into some other form because of his it's hallucination. Just, it's just energy what emanating it? from the blob character that he turned into. See, I, 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 I feel like this door swings both ways. Where we were getting like this de-evolution, and I'm I'm thinking that that you can go forward in evolution, and we were per- perhaps getting an, a more evolved. You think we're all going to look like that weird worm guy? By well, the end? well, well. I you mean, wish. <laughs> um, it, it's it, I do. 
it's, it's like no because uh, no I don't I don't think that but, but <laughs> well I wondered if he was going so far back that it was like he was on the verge of becoming like a single celled organism well I was thinking more in the terms of uh, not to use a technical term of transcendence but right the the evolution that we cease to be physical beings and energy beings right and and while his blob self is some kind of like in between like that's what we're that's what humans will look like in like 2075 because yeah. <laughs> we eat so much well because well, like the whole scene when he's like bashing himself on the hallway and he's like changing channels yes like like he's it's a like television back and forth yeah uh I, uh, that's the that's the image that always stuck with me from this movie that I that I from I saw this movie as a kid. Oh, uh, and the things that stuck with me were the hairy hobbit feet, uh, <laughs> and him freaking out in the hallway. See the image that stuck with me, and what I thought was the last shot of the film, going into this viewing because I probably haven't seen the movie in twenty years, was him naked at the zoo when mm. the guy finds him having eaten the animal, and I thought like. That was like the last scene and there was like maybe a scene of him explaining, you know, to his wife in jail what happened or something like that. I, I Focusing so much on the primitive ape aspect, I feel like that that dead ends because when you go once he becomes an ape once, it's like, oh, You're is prepared he, for that. Yeah. And then it, it goes, oh, yeah, that doesn't happen all the time. Like why did it happen that time and why didn't you put a cage around the entire tank the second time so that he didn't come back out of it either way i i really liked it i like the story and i like the imagery um our director here was ken russell who directed women in love the devils lair of the white worm and the who's tommy which is another really awesome looking movie who yep who are you Writer-novelist Patty Chayevsky wrote Marty, The Hospital, and Network, all three of which won him Oscars for Best Screenplay. He took his screenplay credit off of this film in place of Sidney Aaron because he was not fond of the execution. This was also his last film. He died of cancer about a year after it came out, and it was adapted from his only novel. Normally he wrote screenplays. Mm. The music here is from John Corigliano. This was his first film, and he later composed The Red Violin, but he has startlingly few credits for how much I enjoyed the soundtrack to this movie. I think that it adds at least 40% of the tension to the whole story. Yeah. Cinematographer Jordan Cronenweth, he was a DP on Brewster McCloud, which we did not review for Patreon this month, in favor of Scars of Dracula. He also DP'd Blade Runner and Peggy Sue Got Married. Editor Eric Jenkins also edited Heartbeat this year, both films feature John Larroquette. Coincidence? Probably. <laughs> he also edited Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Ewoks, Battle for Endor, and later, multiple episodes each of the Clueless TV show, Malcolm in the Middle, Lizzie McGuire, and Psych, among others. Uh, our second editor, Jack Harnish, had 36 episodes of In the Heat of the Night, and not much else I recognized in his credits. Makeup here is provided by Dick Smith, He has an Oscar for his makeup on Amadeus and an honorary Oscar for his contribution to the art of special effects makeup. He did makeup for our Patreon title of Dark Shadows in 1970. He also did The Godfather, The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, Deer Hunter. Uh, He comes back for the movie after next, Scanners, in January, which which, if you know the movie, you know this guy earned an honorary statue. Yeah. Uh, He also worked on Ghost Story next year. 
Starman, Poltergeist 3, Death Becomes Her, which is incredible makeup work. Yeah. Uh, Forever Young, again, incredible makeup work. All the way up to the House on Haunted Hill remake. So really all around just badass makeup movies. Yeah, uh, the the human transformation in Starman. Oh my God, yeah. Is so In the cabin? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's so wet. I was, <laughs> I was really Moist. hoping that he would also have a credit on Boogie Nights. Mm. But he doesn't. But how great would it be if Dick Smith was an actual Dick Smith? <laughs> <laughs> William Hurt played Eddie Jessup. This was his first film. And we'll see him next year in Eyewitness and Body Heat. Tom Grunick in Broadcast News. He replaced Sam Elliott as Thaddeus Ross for the MCU. He's Inspector Frank Bumstead in Dark City. And he plays Nick in The Big Chill. Blair Brown was Emily Jessup. She was Paul Simon's estranged wife or ex-wife in One Trick Pony earlier this year. She'll be back next year as Nell Porter in The Continental Divide, or just Continental Divide. More recently, she was in a pair of astronaut movies in a row for Astronaut's Wife and Space Cowboys, but her latest big role was as Judy King, a sort of Paula Deen slash Martha Stewart proxy in Orange is the New Black. Bob Balaban played Arthur Rosenberg, we had him earlier this year in our Patreon review of Catch-22. We'll see him next year in Prince of the City, Absence of Malice, and Whose Life Is It Anyway? He played Dr. Chandra in 2010, The Year We Make Contact, creator of the HAL 9000. His first feature film role was in Midnight Cowboy. And apparently his uncle, Barney Balaban, was the president of Paramount from 1936 to 1964. Charles Hayde played Mason Parrish. He's Officer Andrew Renko in 144 episodes of Hill Street Blues. In the 90s, he transitioned into television directing for shows like Doogie Howser, NYPD Blue, Nip Tuck, and Criminal Minds. Thou Penglis played Echeveria. He's best known as Tony DeMera in 2,029 episodes of Days of Our Lives. He's also in 35 Mission Impossibles, 67 Santa Barbaras, and 29 General Hospitals. Drew Barrymore played Margaret Jessup. Obviously, we'll see her again in E.T. She's in three or four Adam Sandler movies. She's in Ever After, Firestarter. She produced and starred in the Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle movies. She was in Santa Clarita Diet, which I think she also produced. She's in Freddy Got Fingered with her, at the time, husband, Tom Green, who in return has a cameo in the first Charlie's Angels film. She also directed Whip It, which was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Jack Murdoch played Hector Orteco. He's John Mooney in Rain Man. He's Cress in Blue Thunder. And he's Lou in Psycho 3. Francis Xavier McCarthy played Obispo. He's Olsen in The Man with Two Brains. He's Dr. Kaiser in Basketballs. He's the principal in Summer School. And speaking of schools, he also founded a school for gifted youngsters. Oh, no, that's a different Francis Xavier. <laughs> Hap Lawrence played an endocrinology fellow. This is the fifth and final film for Hap Lawrence this year, after Nude Bomb, Holy Moses, Loving Couples, and Coast to Coast. John Walter Davis played a medical technician. He's Brad Heinmuller in Starman and Slobber in Tango and Cash. Susan Bredoff played Echeveria's Girl. She played Kate in The Island which I rewatched significant chunks of The Island trying to figure out who Kate was. Yeah. And I think it's the woman in the editor's office when michael kane is pitching the bermuda triangle story okay um who's just kind of sitting off to the side while he inspects 
proofs of like nude women photos yeah because there's like two women in that movie yes the the other options were the people who uh get in the boat and uh sail across to their own ship while the family gets murdered by pirates Mm -hmm. or the girl that gets kidnapped from that boat but judging from the age and the characters that she played previously, I think she has to be an adult. Well, not the, and also not the main pirate girl. That right. Was no, Michael it's not Kane. her. It's not the punch. Uh, what's her name? Um, John Larroquette played the x-ray technician. He'll be Captain Stillman next year in Stripes. We had him earlier this year as a yuppie talk show host in Heartbeat, where we also mentioned his post-Groden, pre-Reinhold Beethoven career, as well as his vocal appearance reading the prologue to Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, it, it's That's a, quite a jump, because going from playing like these kind of random, like very, very small characters to Major Stillman, which... Is front and center. Is front and center, and the basis for pretty much all his characters going forward. That's true, because it's the most like John Larroquette is. Yeah, that... The, that attitude that that awkward comedy the the sucking up attitude that he plays yeah. especially when he was um you know Dan Fielding on Night Court uh which is i think what most Where he people does that like whispery thing when he's like trying to flatter people but yeah. then he like turns on the offensive mm-hmm. George Gaines was Dr. Wizenshaft he's Commandant Lassard in the Police Academy movies he's Henry in Punky Brewster and he also appeared in a Sliders episode as the elderly version of Jerry O'Connell's character Paul Larson played Charlie Thomas he's Malerny in Kidnapping of the President earlier this year and we'll see him next in his third and final film Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome where he portrays the blaster of Master Blaster Ah. those are all the credits I had I just realized that Theo Paglius guy when you said he was on Days of Our Lives. He's Stefano's son. Wait, is Stefano the murderer? Stefano's like that, yeah, like the old bad guy with, with the, that with accent. The eye patch? No, he doesn't have an eye he patch. He doesn't have an eye patch. I don't think, wow. I never I, d- I don't remember him having an eye patch when I watched But he was but like a villain of the show for a long time. He is the villain of the show, yes. Uh, I wanted to bring up one one uh, other credit that I don't usually bring up because I just thought, I just saw the name and thought I was, was like, oh, I know who that is. So one of the associate producers was Stuart Baird. Uh, he's I know him as an editor because uh, he's edited. Uh, he edited the Richard Donner Superman. He edited also for Richard Donner Lady Hawk and Lethal Weapon, Last Boy Scout. Interesting. Uh, Maverick, La- Legend of Zorro. Uh, I want to say he did the Rocketeer. No, he did not. Sorry, different Stuart. Uh, but uh, yeah, like I, I recognized him as an editor. Uh, and I thought it was strange that he was uh, an associate producer on this film. Yeah, I wonder if maybe he was a part of the previous director's team that got brought in and was contractually, uh, you know, he was supposed to get some money somewhere and they gave him an associate producer credit for the pay. Something. Who knows? That's one of those things you do. It's one of those titles that you give people when you're like, What's uh, your title again? <laughs> shut up. <laughs> well, And he'll edit Outland for us next year. Baird will? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, I, I really like this movie a lot. I think the special effects are top notch. I think they hold up 100% today. Um, especially this Blu-ray is gorgeous. Um, and, you know, everything about this, there's there's not a frame of this that I wouldn't be willing to hang in our house somewhere. It's just, especially everything of Blair Brown nude uh, <laughs> would be great. It's just a few, it's a few that we'll have to no, explain no, no. to the children. No, <laughs> we don't have to explain anything to them. 
Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's a huge thumbs up for me. Oh, definitely, definitely a thumbs up. Yeah, I, I've been waiting for this movie all year. Yeah, um, I'm I'm surprised that something that that I enjoy this much came so, like it came out on Christmas. Mm-hmm. It just so barely. Well, clearly, like, it's a Christmas movie. It's got uh, yeah Jesus in it. Yeah, sort of. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus had seven eyes, right? Make seven eyes yours. Um, do we know where this is going, letterboxed wise? Anybody? Jess. You gonna make me go first, Richard? Uh, <laughs> I I have it at number twenty. All right. Uh, this puts it just below the Elephant Man and above Caddyshack, which <laughs> seems so weird. Two to really think. solid makeup movies in a row, and then two movies that have nothing to do with each other. Well, it just it just seems like it's like God. I have Caddyshack next to the Elephant Man. That just seems really insulting. Uh, well, now you spaced them out a little, Jess. I think we're going to put it at 16. It is below Tess and above 9 to 5. All right. Okay. Uh, I have this. This just barely tucked in there into my top 10. <laughs> this is in 10th place. It's just under Heaven's Gate and just above Airplane. Well, I don't list. think we have to worry about First Family knocking it out of the running. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think we do either. Clear so. number one in my book. Yeah. I think that's everything we have for Altered States. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash Vintage Video Podcast. And on that note, I'd like to give a shout-out to Chuko Ed or... Chew Coed, I'm not sure where the emphasis goes, for your iTunes review. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing the best movie ever and our last one for 1980, First Family, which IMDb describes like so. Bob Newhart stars as President Manfred Link in this zany, wonderful cast comedy from veteran funny man Buck Henry. We leave you now with the trailer. For first family. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Bob Newhart is the President. Who didn't get the souvenir pen with a golden boss presidential seal? Oh, the uh, Senator from Rhode Island. Gilda Radner is first daughter. Wish Dad were a streetcar conductor or something. Millions of people do, dear, but he's not. Madeline Kahn is first lady. First family of the United States. Bob Dishy is the vice president. Richard Benjamin is the presidential press secretary. Fred Willard is the president's special assistant. Rip Torn is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Harvey Corman is our ambassador to the United Nations. Austin Pendleton is the president's translator. Which one of them is the head boogeyman? Which one of you is the chief turkey? First family. Remember when comedy was king? Thank <laughs> you.
Now he's president.